0: Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. When he was 88, the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Winder Holmes found himself on a train. The conductor came by and called for tickets, but Justice Holmes couldn't find his, and he seemed terribly upset. He searched his pockets and fumbled through his wallet without success, and then the conductor came by, but he was kind of sympathetic. He said, hey, don't worry, Mr. Holmes. The Pennsylvania Railroad will be happy to trust you. When you reach your destination, you'll probably find the ticket, and you can just simply mail it to us. Well, the conductor's kindness was uh, not able to put homes at ease, and he began to be a little bit frantic. And he said, my dear man, the problem is not where is my ticket. The problem is where am I going? Beloved, let me ask you today, do you really know where you're going? I mean, you've heard the saying often that it's not about what you know, but it's who you know. I wanna propose to you today that when it comes to the things of God, that is absolutely true. See, I've known my precious bride, Rachel, for over 31 years. Constantly learning about her. I love to learn about her. I love to know her likes, her dislikes, her dreams, her memories, her hurts, her hopes, things that make her laugh, the clothes that she likes, the places she wants to go. But you know, not just knowing about her, but it's knowing her that is a continual goal in my marriage. One of the goals that I have for my life is that I want to love one woman and love her well. Now, if that's the case, though, you would probably be able to see that in my life, right? I mean, you would be able to see some marks, some evidence that I, that I want to know her more and more. You, you'd be also able to see how I'm going about that. I mean, there would be the means by which I'm learning to know her and love her. It would just be so visible. See, some 30 years after Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul and changed his life, he says, I still want to know Christ more. The marks were there, and everyone could see that the passion of Paul's life was Jesus. Paul doesn't leave us to kind of figure this out on our own. He tells us the means, not only the marks, but the means by which we can know Christ too. You see, life is not merely knowing about Jesus. It's an ongoing relationship with him a constant desire to know him better and better. And if you're new with us, we are in the book of Philippians and if you're joining us by way of internet or by way of radio, we're in the book of Philippians and we've entitled it, The Joyous Advancement of the Gospel of Jesus. What I want us to do now is to turn to our book of Philippians. So if you'll be doing that now on your phones and it'll be up on the screen behind me, you can find a Bible in the seat pocket there underneath. And if you don't have a hard copy of God's Word and you would like one, you feel free to take that one that's in the chair beneath. As that's our gift to you. But you would turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. And this morning, we're going to look at one principle today. And then next week, we'll look at the second principle about how do we really know Christ. So out of honor of God's Word, I wonder could we stand together as I begin reading in Philippians chapter 3. Beginning in verse one. Again, I'm in Philippians chapter three. Paul says these words. Finally, I know some of you wish I would say that. <laughs> Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Can I just get somebody to do that right now? Just rejoice in the Lord. Amen. Woohoo! Amen. Isn't that good? To write the same things again to, is no trouble to me but it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God in the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although Paul says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, And if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Here's the first thing we're going to look at today. Today, we're going to look at the marks of knowing Christ, and next week, we'll look at the means by which we can know Christ. So first of all, I can demonstrate the marks of knowing Christ. I can demonstrate the marks of knowing Christ. So we have to stay focused on the true gospel. See, the gospel isn't knowing things about Jesus. It's not doing things for Jesus. I don't want to try to earn his acceptance by things that I do to be made right before him. This mindset of trying to earn righteousness with God is called legalism. Legalism is an attempt to gain my justification. That's a big word. It means my right standing with God, my acceptance with God by my own religious works and efforts. Beloved, you know, we've said it, you can't earn your salvation. It is a gift. Sometimes we forget this and we're tempted in the church with the allure of legalism. Legalism is really self-atonement. It's a way to try and cover my sins with the things that I do. It's it's self-salvation. And it leads to incredible pride, but ultimately to intense despair. So if salvation and the gospel is not anything about what I do, then what is it? And if I truly have and understand the gospel, then what are the marks by which you would see in my life? Paul begins in verse one and he says, finally my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Finally, he's not bringing the book to an end. He's, what he's really saying is there, it can be better translated, and as for the rest, in other words, he's got a few other topics to discuss and he's going to, to take them and he picks up on that dominant theme, the joyous advancement of the gospel. He says we're to rejoice in the Lord, meaning that joy only comes from Jesus. I love this about Paul. He works joy into everything he does. It seems no matter what subject he's talking about, when he's talking about Jesus, he's always talking about joy because there's only joy in Jesus. When he says there, he says, to write the same things is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard to you. What things is he talking about? Well, that word safeguard is the opposite of the verb meaning to trip up or to cause to stumble. So really, Paul is saying, hey, listen, I don't want you to get tripped up concerning the gospel. The false teachers are proclaiming salvation through rituals, through ceremonies, through legalism. And Paul's saying, I want to warn you that you won't stumble over that. As a matter of fact, I've written the same things to you previously. He he mentioned there that phrase, and it takes us back to chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, where Paul says this. Paul said in in chapter one, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he goes on to say, and in no way be alarmed by your opponents. Paul is reminding them that there are people that are coming to try to pervert the gospel. I don't want you to get tripped up again. So it's really the gospel that he's teaching. And Paul is saying by continually keeping the gospel in front of the church, we are protected from legalism and false gospels. Can I just remind you, folks, that it's all about Jesus and the gospel. Don't ever get tired of hearing the gospel. I never get tired of preaching it, amen? It's the greatest expression of love, and it's the greatest reason we have to rejoice. So if Paul begins to tell us that marks can demonstrate our life, well, then what are those marks, Paul? Well, Paul tells us. He says, first of all, there's a deep work in the soul. There's a deep work in the soul because he, he begins telling us about this mark. But he says, hey, listen, you're going to you're going not be deceived here. You've got to pay attention because there's some who have a false mark. And I don't want you to pay attention to the false mark, but you need to know the false mark so that you can realize the true mark when it comes. So it begins in verse two and he says, beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. You see, during the time of the early church, many devout Jews were willing to accept Jesus as Messiah, but they wanted to hold on to forms of Judaism. They believed that Gentiles, that would be you and I, if you're not Jewish, they would believe that Gentiles had to become Jews before becoming Christians. In other words, they had to take on the right of circumcision and also follow the law of Moses. Moses. They were basically saying that unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Leaders of the church, including Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter, denied this claim and preserved the gospel that it comes by grace. Salvation comes through Christ and grace alone, apart from the works of the law. So Paul says, beware, pay attention, use your eyes and see. Look for the marks, these false marks, because they're out there. And if you don't really recognize what it's going to look like, it's going to bark when you see it because he calls them dogs. You have to understand when Paul uses the word dogs, it's not like your little lap dog that's at your house. It's not like the dog that you put outside. It's not a domesticated house pet. These were nasty, unclean, and very dangerous animals. They wandered where they didn't belong, and they often traveled in packs. Paul says that these are entering churches and damaging the church severely. These dogs are the Judaizers that teach you that you have to be Jewish to be saved or right with God. They're those who simply add to the gospel of Jesus. This reference to dogs is striking because Jews would call Gentiles dogs. But now Paul is saying, no, it's the other way around. You're really the dogs because you're adding to the gospel. They're referred to as people of now, he says, the false circumcision. What's interesting to me, and I don't mean to be graphic or gross, but the word there, as I studied this week, when he says that they're the false circumcision, probably a better translation is simply this, they're mutilators of the flesh. They were doing things to their bodies in an attempt to please God, but it only angered him. They were trusting in a physical operation, a removal of certain parts of the body, a physical act to only accomplish what could be done in the spirit. They were trusting this instead of God's gracious work in salvation through Christ. One commentator says here in Philippians, Paul takes the Judaizers greatest source of pride and uses it to show that they have no part in being God's people. When Gentiles accept this pressure to be circumcised in order to gain God's blessing, they're acting like pagans who simply always mutilate their flesh in an attempt to please the favor of the God that they serve. What Paul is saying is, is, listen, you don't need mutilation. What you need is regeneration. So let's talk about that word circumcision for a minute. And I want to put all parents at ease. We won't talk about the act. We're going to talk about the philosophy. Circumcision was so significant that un-Jewish males were cut off from the kingdom of God. Circumcision graphically illustrated man's depravity. And it's nowhere more manifest than in the procreative act because it's then that the sin nature is passed on to a new generation. You see, circumcision was a symbol picturing man's need to be cleansed from sin at the deepest root of his being. And the bloodshed involved in the physical act of circumcision oftentimes symbolized the need for a sacrifice to make you clean. Like baptism in the new covenant, circumcision was to reflect an inward reality. God commanded the the Israelites in Jeremiah 4, he said, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. But sadly, by Paul's day, circumcision had become this mere outward ritual that was void of intended significance. Romans 2 says it this way, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a violator of the law, your circumcision has turned into uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will his uncircumcision not be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised. If he keeps the law, will he not judge you, though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a violator of the law? Here's what Paul is really saying. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter, and his praise is from people, not from God. So this is a false mark. To claim that any religious ritual that I have been through makes me right with God. We have to be careful. Then Paul says in verse 3, but we are the true circumcision. In verse 3, Paul says, hey, I don't want to speak of the circumcision of the flesh, but that of a deep work in the soul. At the end of the letter to Galatians, he says it like this. Galatians 6.15, he says, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation is what matters. So it's been said, these Judaizers were really proclaiming a false circumcision. They were saying the physical symbol itself was enough to ensure inclusion in the people of God, regardless of what's inside my heart. Ironically, in doing so, they were ignoring their own prophecies that said that circumcision was really just a sign. It was a symbol. It was to represent, not replace, a special relationship with God through the Messiah. So, The idea here is that for centuries, Jewish leaders had seen that the physical circumcision was nothing but a symbol. And they had warned people to never confuse the symbol with the substance or the ritual with the reality. What God has always required is the new birth. The new birth happens when a person comes under conviction of their sin, realizes that they're separated from God, cries out to God for mercy, realizes that the way of God's mercy is that God sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay for our sin, to be buried, and to be raised from the end, to offer us forgiveness, to offer us life. And when we do that and we call upon God for forgiveness, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and we experience the new birth. Nothing outwardly does that. It's a deep work in the soul. So what Paul says, if you and I have nothing to show but circumcision, a religious rituals of the flesh, all we have is a physical mark and we're not really circumcised. We're only mutilated. In fact, he goes on to say that it's Christians, not the Jews, are truly set apart by God because they have had a deep work within their soul. Paul knows that righteousness can only be attained from the inside out, wrought not by man's works, but humble acceptance of the grace found in God through Christ. So then those who know Christ are the true circumcision. And as a result of that new birth, things are now new and a change begins to take place in me, which leads to the next mark. There's a divine worship in the spirit. In verse three, he says this, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God. The next mark of a genuine believer is a heart that overflows with worship, just like we were doing today through song and through all kinds of things. The origin of my worship has got to be supernatural since it's the spirit of God that now regenerates me and generates my worship. The Christian realizes that true worship is not about a ritual we perform, it's about the attitude of my heart. I can go through all kinds of rituals and devotional acts and still not truly worship. I can respond to external stimuli and still not be responding to God at all. Listen to me. Rituals have no power. Relationship with Jesus is what changes the heart. Because of the new birth, Christians possess the spirit who enables me now to worship God in truth. Romans 8, 9 says this. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Speaking to a Samaritan woman who was kind of by a well, Jesus clearly defined true and acceptable worship. He told her all about her life and kind of shocked her. She was living a very immoral lifestyle, and she tries to change the subject. She says in John, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And in response, Jesus said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And what Jesus teaches is that true worship takes place in the heart, not in a special location. That's why I can worship God wherever I go. It doesn't have to be here. It can be here. But then the Lord revealed a second truth about true worship in John. He says, hey, you worship what you don't know, but we worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. Acceptable worship is based on the truth of salvation revealed in the scriptures, which were given first to the Jewish people. It's not to be performed according to the whims of the worshipers. Then Jesus gives the clearest definition of worship in all the Bible. In John chapter four, he says this, but a time is coming. And even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He says spirit and truth twice. God saved believers to worship him. True Christians are those who worship God through the obedience to his word based on relationship with him. Worship is mankind's highest duty. If you've ever wondered, why have I been created? You have been created, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, you have been created, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But it might be translated, he says there, we worship in the spirit of God. That word worship can mean to render respectful spiritual service. You see, true worship goes beyond singing. It goes beyond just doing things in a worship service. It is a lifestyle of worship that God is after. But it's interesting because the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, 16. He says, but also a part of this is do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Did you know that I can worship God simply by just doing good? It's interesting. So once there's a deep work in the soul, the believer worships God in the spirit, but then the spirit points the believer constantly to Jesus, which is the third mark. There's a devoted wonder of the son. There is a devoted wonder of the son. He says there, we worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, the believer boasts in nothing and glory nothing but Jesus. Galatians six fourteen says, be far from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Did you know that we don't glory in our earthly status? We don't glory in our achievements, or our gifts. Salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And that salvation came by faith through the new birth. When we place our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to save us, then we're completely aware that it is all by, with, to, and for Jesus. I cannot say it more clearly. True Christians give the credit for all that they are and all that they have to the Lord Jesus and Jesus alone. True believers make much of Jesus. The Christian life is a Christ-exalting life, amen? And as that deep work in the soul takes place, there's worship in the spirit and a wonder about the son, and then there's this ongoing mark, which is the final mark Paul shares, and that is this, there's a daily dying to self. A daily dying to self, he says there, and put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh represents man's fallen, unredeemed humanness. It pictures human ability apart from God. Unlike many who boast according to the flesh, true Christians put no confidence in it. They understand that the spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. There's nothing good that dwells in us. And so Paul says, because of the pervasive influence of the sinful flesh, what a lot of theologians call depravity, no one could ever merit salvation. It's only when I turn away from my sinful self-effort and embrace the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone am I saved. And that marks this genuine repentance. So if I'm not a Christian, I challenge you to walk with me through the rest of the text and say, hey listen, Paul says, I wasn't a Christian, and I trusted a lot of things. And he begins to walk us through that. He says, hey, verse 4, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, and if anybody else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I beg to let you know, but I think I got y'all beat. Just like Frog says, hey, I got this fishing thing whooped. Paul says, hey, you want to try doing flesh things? I got all y'all beat. I've tried the flesh stuff. His point is he's doing this to show the Philippians and you and I the emptiness of fleshly confidence. Paul could boast in his own religious privileges and accomplices because he had so many. and Paul begins to identify those to us and let's just walk through them real quickly because these are going to... Help us understand. And I can't make a very modern, straight, word-for-word comparison between this and where we're at today. But I think there are some principles here that will apply to us. So listen to me. If you are trusting anything but Jesus, I want to challenge you maybe to look and see if this resonates with you to find out why we say it's only Jesus. Paul says, hey, I can have no confidence in a faith ritual. He can have no confidence in a faith ritual because he says there in verse five, circumcise the eighth day. Paul didn't become a Jew by putting faith in the Jewish God, even though he might've been of another race. Paul was very Jewish. His family had followed Genesis 17, 12 that says this, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. Now some converts to Judaism couldn't claim the eighth day, but Paul could. And says he even placed no confidence in that ritual to make him right with God. See, listen to me, beloved, listen very carefully. Sometimes we think we are right with God because we've been sprinkled, because we've been baptized as an infant or as an adult, that we've said some kind of a prayer, we've come down to an altar. Listen to me, those experiences aren't grounds for spiritual confidence. Paul went through a spiritual Jewish ritual, but he considered it of nothing. He says, I consider it lost to the sake of knowing Christ. Salvation is about becoming a new creation in Christ, not about going through a particular ritual. So we see in Acts chapter eight, this man, his name was Simon Magnus. And and not only did he make a profession of faith when he heard the apostles preaching, but, but also he allowed Peter to baptize him. And then he went on and continued with Philip. But yet, then we find that he goes on in life. He indicates that he was truly never saved in the first place. And I want you to know today, you can make a profession of faith. You can follow through with the waters of baptism. But it means nothing if you were trusting that rather than Jesus to save you, beloved. Listen to me. We can have no confidence in a faith ritual. But then we can have no confidence in a family relationship have no confidence in a family relationship. He says there, not only did I say I was circumcised the eighth day, but I'm of the nation of Israel. Paul was a physical descendant of Abraham. He was not a Gentile convert to Judaism, but he was a real deal. Yet that special privilege didn't give him reason to have assurance in his salvation. He had to look not to where he came from, but where the salvation came from, and that was Jesus. Today, some believe they're Christians because their family are Christians. So I've heard it over and over, they say things to me. I say, hey, tell me about how you became a Christian. Tell me about where you're at with Jesus. How do you know that you're saved? Then I say, I've always believed. I mean, I came out of the womb believing. I was raised in a Christian home. But can I tell you today that unless you have been made a Christian through the new birth, your natural birth is of no consequence to you. Thirdly, Paul says I can have no confidence in famous respectability. Famous respectability because he says, hey, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. When the promised land was divided among the 12 tribes, Jerusalem, the holy city was in Benjamin's territory. When the kingdom split, Judah and Benjamin remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty. Paul says as proud as that makes him as a Jew that he came from that tribe, it was no ultimate value for granting anyone salvation. Some hold to being from a certain church, saying that being from a certain church makes them right with God, holding on to a certain denomination. Listen to me. Being born inside of a church and being born into a certain denomination does not mean that you are right with God. Then Paul says, I can have no confidence in a favored race. I can have no confidence in a favored race. Verse five, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, Paul was fluent in Greek, but he didn't abandon his Hebrew culture. He was fluent in Hebrew and devoted to Hebrew culture. Although God had placed his favor on the Hebrew people, and they were his chosen ones that did not automatically make them right with God, they still needed faith in the Messiah. You and I cannot rely on our cultural heritage, our race, our family tradition to make us right with God. I have met a lot of people over the years, invited them to come to worship, who have claimed that their entire family was of a particular religious group and they were okay. Beloved, don't trust in tradition. You have to trust in the ultimate Hebrew, Jesus Himself, to make you right. Then Paul says, I can have no confidence in a forced religion. And I have no confidence in a forced religion because, verse 5, he says, Hey, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Well, come on then, big boy. The Pharisees loved their rules. Their name comes from an Aramaic term denoting the separated ones. They even added commands to the Old Testament. So much, most people didn't know what was Pharisaical and what was biblical. That's who Paul was. He adopted a Pharisaical lifestyle. He belonged to a morally superior group of Jews. And today you will meet people who think that salvation comes by being a morally good person. Now to be clear, I'm not saying you need to go out and break all the rules. I'm just telling you that if you think by keeping rules will make you right with God, you're sadly mistaken. Many have the idea that moral people will go to heaven. Can I just challenge you. The example of the rich young ruler shows that living a moral life cannot save anyone. He claimed to have kept at least outwardly all the Ten Commandments. He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, listen, I've kept all the commandments since my birth. And then he says, teacher, what good things should I do that I could obtain eternal life? This reveals that he knew, he knew that even keeping all the laws couldn't result in his salvation. So he came to Jesus and said, what else must I do? And Jesus says, there's nothing you can do. I have done it all. And if you just trust me, you can be saved. Listen, Jesus did not come to make you better and he did not become to make you more moral. The problem is not that we're less than or whatever. The problem is that you and I are dead in our sins. Jesus Christ came to bring us from death to life, beloved. He came to bring us from death to life. He came to fix our sin problem. And once we get saved, we might become more moral. We might not. Because the issue's never been about all that. The issue's been that we are dead and separated. And Jesus came to bring us alive and bring us back to God, beloved. So rules Not only reveal just how much sinful they are, how sinful I am, they reveal that I can't even keep them in the first place. So then Paul begins to tell us second to last. He says, I can have no confidence in a fervent reputation neither. Verse 6, he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Listen, beloved, I heard this claim and you've heard this claim that says this. The world says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it. Well, it would be hard for anyone to fathom anyone more sincere about what they believed about their salvation than Saul of Tarsus. I mean, he wasn't a Pharisee in name only. He was very zealous. In Galatians, he tells me, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. And his zeal was expressed through the persecution of the church. Paul actually killed believers, true believers in Jesus Christ, for believing something that he didn't believe. He was that zealous that he would kill people for what he believed. Beloved, can I tell you, salvation never comes by your passion. People are passionate about a lot of things. Salvation comes through knowing the real man of zeal, Jesus Christ. Listen to me. You can be sincere about what you believe, but you can be sincerely wrong. And I need you to know today that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And lastly, Paul tells me this. I can place no confidence in a faultless righteousness and a faultless righteousness. Because he says there in verse six, he says this, and as to the righteousness found in the law, brothers, I was blameless. (laughs) Paul is saying that his life was exemplary when it came to obeying the Old Testament law. He was a self-righteous person who boasted in his ability to keep God's law. But later he talks about this need for the righteousness of another. Salvation comes, listen to me, Salvation comes not through your obedience, but by the obedience of another. It's based on the work of Christ, not on what you do. And while Paul's public record of moral performance was stellar, as you've read and we share this morning, he says, everything I counted as gain, now I consider loss. Because that's the way it is. Righteousness comes from God that comes from faith. And that's the difference between what we believe here in this church and what's promoted around the rest of the world with other religions and even other denominations. Because other systems promote works-based righteousness, but the gospel is about imputed righteousness. It's about receiving Christ's righteousness as my own because I don't have any. The most sincere religious person can't keep God's law. I need Jesus. He lived the life I should have lived and he died the death that I deserve to what? Now give me the life I don't deserve and the life I could never live. No matter how good I think I am, I will always fall short of what God asks. No matter how zealous I am, I will fall short because Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, there's not a person in this room who hasn't fallen short and doesn't continually fall short of God's perfect standard. As a result, the Bible says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. In other words, because I have fallen short and I've sinned just even one time, the wages of that is death. It is eternal separation from God in my body, but also eternal separation from God in my spirit. But, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus. He said, I can have no confidence in my flesh because my flesh is sinful. I have to turn to God and receive his gift to forgive me. James Kennedy, I borrow an illustration from him as I begin to close. Imagine that he says, imagine you're standing on the brink of a cliff and across the chasm, it's 200 feet away. Across this chasm is another cliff and it's separated by this distance of 200 feet, but below is a a huge ravine that's 5,000 feet deep. And you have to get to the other side of the chasm. You have a nylon rope that's strong enough to hold up to 3,000 pounds without breaking. It'll easily support you, but it's only 100 feet and you need 200. So here I come along and I say, hey, don't worry. (laughs) I was a Boy Scout. I'm always prepared. So here's a spool of thread for you. I found this in my, my wife's sewing kit, and here's some thread. Here's what we, I've got 100 yards of thread, so we're going to attach 100 yards of thread to your strong, sturdy nylon rope, and we'll just stretch it out, and you go for it. Anybody that's rightfully thinking understands that thread won't hold up anything. It's a good idea, but you're not going to take the challenge. Well, then let's just change it a little bit. Let's say that instead of 100 feet of strong rope, you now have 190 feet of strong rope. And now you're like, hey, you know what? Well, you got 10 feet, I've got 190, maybe we can try that. But then your mind says, no, I know that a piece of thread isn't gonna hold me up even if it's only 10 feet long. Okay, let's change this scenario even more. Let's say that now you have 199 feet, 11 inches of good stout rope. And all I've got to do is provide one inch for you to get to the other side. Are you willing to trust one inch of thread to get you across that chasm? You would absolutely say no, because you realize this, no amount of thread attached to good rope will ever get you there. Even the one inch will break when you try. And Beloved, I am here to tell you today it's the same way with salvation, unless it's all of Jesus, it really won't get you where you're going. Your righteousness will break down at some point. It has to be all of Jesus or you won't make it. Beloved, today, your salvation cannot be 50% Christ and 50% you. It can't be 60, 40, 75, 25, or 99% you and 1%, 99% Jesus and 1% you. Everything rests on Jesus. You see, I can demonstrate that. There's a deep work that happens in my soul when I begin to worship God in spirit. And then I have this awesome wonder about Jesus and a daily dying to myself. You know, last week, we all kind of experienced uh, the storm, and like many. Uh, in the community, man, I had several bursts pipe in my attic and they flooded my entire downstairs. If you go into my house and you look up at my ceiling, you're going to see the marks of where the water was. If you look on my floors and my walls, you can see the marks where the water was. Beloved, if you've been covered in Jesus, I'm going to be able to tell where the water was. You can demonstrate that by knowing christ you say well how do i do that well we'll talk about that next week let me ask you as the band comes back up if sarah and nathan will come let me ask you the question where we started do you really know where you're going and are you confident of how you're going to get there do you know jesus When Philip Brooks, the author of Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem that we sing at Christmas, when he was seriously sick, he requested that no friends come to see him. But when an acquaintance of his named Robert Ingersoll, a famous anti-Christian propagandist, when this this anti-Christian person came to see him, Philip said, okay, I can see him, and he anticipated his visit very much. Brooks responded, he says, oh, I'm confident that I'll see all my other friends in the next world. That's why I don't want to see them now. But he told this man, he said, the reason I wanted to see you is because I'm afraid this may be the last time I'll ever see you. Can I tell you something, brothers and sisters, man, if I I were to walk out of this room today, take my last breath I'm assured that I'm going to see some of you again and you're not who I'm concerned about right now I'm concerned deeply for those of you who just don't know because I want to see you again I think everybody in this room that knows Jesus Christ wants to see you again. If you're listening by way of internet or by way of radio, I want you to know, I may I never lay my eyes on you, but I want to one day. See, I'm reminded of the Hess family that you just never know when it's your time. Reminded of people who were just living life, going through the normal works of life, and then COVID hits, and they're in a hospital, and then they just pass away. They didn't plan on that. I'm reminded of people who kind of get caught up in life and didn't plan on doing it, but the next thing you know, they they may take their own life. You, You just don't know what's going to happen. Please don't walk out of this room not knowing. All you have to do is realize right now that there's a conviction going on in your heart. Right now, if there's something happening inside of your heart, to realize that Jesus is speaking to you. That you have sinned against him. And all you have to do is call out upon his name. Jesus, I realize that I have sinned. And I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Please have mercy on my soul. Please, please come into me and make me new. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you were buried. I believe that you were raised. I believe, save me, Jesus. And if you do that and trust completely in him, you can know where you're going. But you can know the one who will take you. I wonder if you just rise your feet right now. We're just going to pray a prayer. And if you need Jesus Christ today, or you need to pray about anything in any way, there'll be people down here in the front to pray with you. People down here to talk with you. But I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing, and we're going to ask the Lord to do what only He can do. Lord Jesus, would you bring the lost home? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sing?